93.5 WHMP. Good afternoon and welcome to the program. Hello, Dan Torres. Hello, Buzz. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. I drove in. It was snowing in Ashfield. It was really beautiful. It was big flakes and everything was white. And the closer I came, the grosser it got. How was it in Amherst? Uh, not like that at all, no. Like <laughs> the snow was trying to get onto the ground. It didn't work. Yeah. Uh, what's today's date? I forgot. Today is January 6, it 2023. Is. Well, and I want to talk a little bit about January 6. I first wanted to say, though, one of my... One of my heroes is here, Tracy Kidder. We're going to be talking to Tracy in a moment about his most recent um, and important book. But um, today is January 6th. It's a day when we once again are witnessing the train wreck that has become our Article One branch, the so-called people's branch of our government. Um, the House of Representatives has become the House of Reprehensible and we all watch and we wait for the superheroes to emerge who can salvage decency and rationality in this, the post-Constitution era of U.S. history. And after all, that's where we all turn, isn't it? We've been searching for superheroes since we've been kids. Ask your browser for a list of the most successful box office hits of all time, and you'll see the enormous popularity of the Avengers and the Spider-Mans and the Black Panthers. So why should today be any different? Why not expect heroes who emerge from the 435-member House of Representatives to make sense out of the incomprehensible? Some certainly emerged from that other January 6, two years ago, that blatant assault on a representative democracy that we watched from our living rooms. And then in its wake, some heroes did emerge from the House itself. They worked tirelessly until the clock ran out on them to do all they could to ensure that the 45th, 45th president could never again hold the office that he had so previously so desecrated. The January 6th committee acted as heroes act. They fought against daunting challenges to ensure that the attack on the Capitol was just an isolated in event. And to do that, to prevent it from happening again, they had approved that it was a coordinated assault. And it was. And that assault continues to this very day, two years later, as we watch vote after vote, and we watch some extremely obstreperous people who hate government, but are part of it, prevented from functioning. The restraint and the relentless commitment of the committee's leadership was equal to the mission that they overtook. They, in fact, acted as heroes. The chair, Benny Thompson, he invoked the words of his self-described superhero, Abraham Lincoln, who wrote before the critical election of 1864, quote, This morning, as for some days past, it seems exceedingly probable that this administration shall not be reelected. Then it will be my duty to so cooperate with the new president-elect. And Benny Thompson said, That was a sol solemn commitment to accept the results, even if a loss might have meant the end of our union. And the vice chair, Liz Cheney of Wyoming. She warned of judgment from generations to come by addressing her colleagues' defense of the indefensible. She said, quote, there will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor, it will remain. These committee members, they acted heroically. Well, here in the studio is another. Our guest today is one who spent his working life looking for superheroes among us. He is the Pulitzer Prize winning author, Tracy Kidder, and he has an uncanny ability to identify those among us who, while they don't wear capes, are in fact superheroes. And Tracy Kidder is himself a local treasure. He's a clarion. He shines a spotlight on such heroes. Heroes like Dr. Paul Farmer, who, while he passed away about a year ago, year ago juxtaposing what's going to happen generations from now about his memory. And thanks to Tracy's book, Mountains Beyond Mountains, Paul Farmer's honor will live on for generations to come long after his death. And so I say to you, Tracy Kidder, thank you for recognizing the heroes and pointing them out to us. And hello. Hello. <laughs> thank you for patiently listening to my rant. Uh, well, the, your overstatement. <laughs> <laughs> Not an overstatement. 
So before we start, I really want to thank you for your recently released book. It's about another hero, Dr. Jim O'Connell, and we want to hear all about Dr. O'Connell. This is a man who created a community of care for a city's unhoused population, including those who sleep on the streets. And thus the title of the book, it's Rough Sleepers, Dr. Jim O'Connell's Urgent Mission to Bring Healing to Homeless People. How did you get involved in Dr. O'Connell's story. I, I was uh, doing another book, uh, and I was with a guy. Uh, uh, it, was, it was a software entrepreneur who had actually the founder of Kayak, one of them, kayak.com. And he was very interested in uh, social causes in Boston, but particularly in homelessness. And he asked around, and he uh, people in Boston who were in the know said, well, if you want to know about homelessness here, you've got to go see... Uh, Jim O'Connell. So he was invited out on what's called the outreach van, which goes out, two, two vans actually go out 24 7 uh, and, uh, in the city at night um, looking for the, the rough sleepers, the people who do not go into shelters or, you know, have a. a and, and did they, they bring them food, so, clean socks, that sort of thing, coats sometimes, sleeping bags, but and they're mostly there. And, and O'Connell, Jim would ride. He used to ride three three nights a week, but he he's now in his seventies. He he was only riding one night a week. But he would he was there also to tend to minor wounds, but mostly to try to get people to come into to the hospitals or the or the shelters if he really felt it was necessary, if they would come. I mean, it wasn't coercive. Um, it, it wasn't a, exactly a medical van, but it was a, a way to spot people. And there were particularly, I mean, it, it's really kind of a wonderful institution. All the drivers um, all kind of knew all these people. I mean, and Rough Sleepers they is like— They knew them by name or the name that No, they, they know them by name, and they know where they live, and they know, the, you know, they, they, they're they kind of like homebodies without homes, the, mm. the, the old Rough Sleepers, the old-time Rough Sleepers. It's not a—they uh, it, 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 are—and they are a, a, a pretty colorful group— Interesting group. They were. Uh, what what struck me first about this was the way that these two people, these two parties, responded to each other. Here, this Harvard-educated doctor, and these poorest of the city's poor, and the, the clear affection between them was amazing to me, and and you know, and also you know, the whole landscape of what we, what we what we saw, stuff that you just. Stuff that's hidden in plain sight for most of us. And, and I, I was struck by Jim O'Connell's story. He graduates from Harvard Medical School and was nearing the end of his residency at Mass General Hospital, this prestigious institution, and the chief of medicine makes a proposal. Would uh, Jim O'Connell prefer a prestigious fellowship, or would he rather spend a year helping to create an organization to bring health care to homeless citizens? And Jim chose the latter. No, no, no! You got this wrong. Oh, I got it wrong. He, he was actually conscripted. He, what, what the situation was that that 1980s, right around the time of Ronald Reagan, homelessness was soaring in the United States. It's really when the modern era of homelessness began in the 80s. Jim, Jim was at Mass General then, it, just as you say, had just been offered a prestigious fellowship at Sloan Kettering to go into oncology, and he was called into the the office of the chief of medicine. Uh, uh, and, and with another eminent doctor at Mass General. And what, what was happening was that there were, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation was putting out, was offering grants to create health care for the homeless programs in cities, and cities would compete for the grants. Boston wanted one, a doctor was necessary, and the mayor had turned to one of these doctors to find him a doctor. The salary was pretty low, and, you know, the prestige was even lower. And they asked him if he would do it for a year, just a year. And he didn't, see, didn't feel like he could refuse. These were his eminent teachers. But he, did, he does still call it conscription. <laughs> I mean, he, he thinks, you know, he's I think he, for, He's done it his whole life. He's done it his whole career. Yeah. I mean, there's a, he, he didn't intend to do that. He, but after a year, he still felt he, what he had discovered was so astonishing to him, which is really like a, a war zone within a city that wasn't visible. I mean, uh, the uh, I don't know if you're supposed to use these word terms anymore, but the third world, is, in, right in the shadows of the, these great medical institutions, people dying. I mean, rough sleepers in Boston die at roughly 10 times the 
have, have a death rate roughly 10 times that of the uh, general population. And, and homeless people generally have, uh, who are sheltered have a, a death rate about four times that of their, their counterparts in the regular population. So what Jim was finding was what he calls disaster, and practicing disaster medicine. I mean, the doc, these people had been terribly neglected, um, and when they had gotten into the hospitals, pretty badly treated in general. And Tracy Kidder, is, is the term "rough sleepers" one that you came up with, or is that a, the term? No, it com- it's a it's it's pretty ancient. I mean, it may go back as far as um, Virgil in the Aeneid, but but it was it's certainly used uh, a lot in Europe, and it, it dates back to the 19th century there. Um, and it, it, it refer, it's the same. Well, Jim, it's very hard to find the right terms, the polite terms for um, homeless people. And, and uh, I, I know you're supposed to say unhoused these days. I don't think so. I don't think that works. We say we were told unsheltered is the right I, term. I, I find the, all, these, all these attempts at euphemism to be utterly useful. Those are less expressive, it seems to me, than homeless people. And, and, and they're kind of tidying something up that isn't tidy at all. I, I could go on a whole rant about euphemism. It, what 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 is it really? What does it really promote? In many cases, not in all, but in many cases, it simply promotes the the the, the, the self satisfaction of the speaker. I, I, Jim had a I, I quickly diverged. He had he had one he had one uh, patient who, uh, well, he he started receiving bricks in the mail from somebody he didn't know who. And a year later, finally, this one patient who he thought was very friendly to him had. Um, confessed that he'd done this. And Jim said, well, why'd you do that? He said, you called me a Native American. I'm an Indian. Gee, uh, <laughs> <you> did. <laughs> you know, so I think you have to be a little careful of those things. I'm sorry to digress like that. But, no, it's but he, pretty interesting. He, he, he had, um, so, he, so he felt he hadn't finished his job, he, the job, so he, he signed up for another year. And then at the end of that, you know, I think I, in my book I write that he what, he, what he told me, which was that, he just thought, you know, this is horrible. This is incredible, but it's also fascinating. I trained. I wanted to treat sick people, and have I got found myself in a place where people are sick? Mm. And and I think, you know, from then on, it was just put your head down and go. They got tremendous help from the city uh, and from the state, and and the, and that's been consistent throughout. It's. It's probably the best of these organizations. I think most people would acknowledge that. There are some very good ones in Denver, for instance, and in Washington, D.C. But this one has, for instance, a 105-bed respite hospital, a really a, a gem of a place where homeless people who have had medical procedures who you know, are about to be put back on the street on the, you know, without any respite at all or people who just have to get, they just have to get inside, or people who are in special danger can come, and it's a it's a wonderful place. It, no other no other part of the country has a place like this. In your in your book, which I think on the seventeenth will be released, Rough Sleepers, um, Dr. Jim O'Connell's urgent mission to bring healing to homeless people. He he Jim O'Connell um, talked this approach to medicine in which patients and providers create this system of friends. He calls what? it a system of friends. What the, what has evolved? Well, you know, in medical school, he was told, you know, be friendly but not a friend. He said, you know, if we if we had tried to practice that conscientiously, we'd never gotten anywhere with this population. These are people who have been terribly abused by the system and the medical system in general, and very suspicious, and they were in, in need of a lot of medical care. This is all coming at a time, this all began, this whole thing in the mid-'80s, when medicine was becoming a corporate enterprise, by and large. Uh, you know, and, and doctors were going to be expected to, to see their patients within a prescribed period of time and to be productive and, and efficient. And um, it just doesn't work with homeless people. If you, if you really practi- practice that conscientiously, you wouldn't have any patients. Mm. But, you know, and so in a way, this reflect, in a way, they provide care for homeless people that's better than, and it shouldn't be this way, than, than a lot of Americans who aren't homeless get. Um, and it's, you know, and it is free to the, those, those homeless people. It's I think it's a breathtakingly beautiful uh, story. But what attracted, I mean, you worked with Dr. Paul Farmer, who truly, as I mentioned before yeah. in my opening, he, he truly was a heroic figure who did amazing things throughout the world. Your daughter is a physician. Yep. Um, and this book um, 
is about a physician. What 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 attracts you to write about physicians? Well, I I, I actually think that uh, along with teaching, that medicine is is the greatest profession of all. If you love it, <laughs> you know. If you don't, I think both of those jobs will torture you every minute you practice them. But think about this. Here's the, here's a guy who just loved being a doctor, as some doctors really do, you know. Uh, and he, and now he has, and he has a chance, you know, after after ha- having helped to build this organization, building a system in which you really can provide effective care. Um, he has a chance to practice his trade among people who really, really need it and who are really grateful for it. And you have to think, you know, you know, he's a pretty lucky guy. I think it's a, how many people get to work that way, to, to really be able to throw their heart and soul into it and, and get uh, paid back in that, in that sort of way. I well, think, what a, what and he, you know, and the truth is he's, a, he's an interesting guy. He has, he has this capacious, it, he just, he's a guy who has a very hard time saying no to anyone, and it can be a weakness, but it's also a great strength because he, he, he's there to listen and he listens really well. He, and it's not coincidental, I think, that as a young man, he, and he made his way, he paid his way through Harvard Med School largely by being a bartender. And as a bartender's art, you know, he said, for, among other things, you know, you, you learn to listen. He said, but he, he also learned to listen to not always very coherent talk. And, if, and it trains you very well for this job. It's a different kind of medication. <laughs> yeah, right. We were talking with Tracy Kidder. The book is Rough Sleepers, Dr. Jim O'Connell's Urgent Mission to Bring Healing to Homeless People. It's a great place to take a break. We're going to be back in just a couple minutes with Tracy. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. If it's Monday, it's Mayor's Monday on WHMP. And on this Mayor's Monday, we'll be speaking with the mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia, about policing and schools and taxes and what Western Massachusetts mayors can expect from the Healy administration. So please join us Monday at 9 o'clock. Get in on the conversation. Bill Newman. Weekdays at 9. And again at 5. WHMP. News, information, and the arts. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone. Two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. WHMP is looking for organizations that regularly distribute information about employment opportunities to job applicants or have job applicants to refer. If your organization would like to receive notification of job vacancies at our station, please notify us at Careers, WHMP Radio, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01060, phone number 413-586-7400, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer and encourages minorities and females to apply. Want to know more about local history, literature, and education? Hilltown Families bi-monthly learning ahead cultural itineraries offer an easy way to delve into Western Mass culture and traditions. These new seasonal itineraries are produced in collaboration with a humanities scholar and community education expert, offering ways for self-directed teens and lifelong learners to engage in learning that helps shape a sense of place. Funded by a year-long grant from Mass Humanities, you can download guides anytime, free of charge, at Hilltown Families. My baby boy was a very good sleeper. He would nap in the morning and nap again in the afternoon, so my routine became that I would drink the first half of the time I expected him to sleep so that I could pass out the second half. Even during my pregnancy, knowing that it might be harmful to the baby, I could not stop drinking. The fear of any harm to that child was not enough to make me stop. 
Sometimes I would try to go to the park with him, but I was becoming really fearful of people finding out what a sick person I was. Today, since I joined AA, I don't have that sensation anymore at all. I have a purpose in life today. I know who I am. I know where I'm going and I feel good about it. I can be a mother to my child and I can be a wife to my husband and I couldn't be any of those things when I was drinking. Alcoholics Anonymous, it works. Look us up. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 or visit westernmassaa.org. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we are back with Pulitzer Prize-winning author uh, Tracy Kidder, whose most recent book is Rough Sleepers, Dr. Jim O'Connell's Urgent Mission to Bring Healing to Homeless People. Uh, I really want to thank you for providing me with a copy of your book, Tracy, and by way of uh, quite honestly, I, I I started reading it and didn't finish in time to have this discussion with you. But I'm wondering if you would read um, read from the book for our listeners. Sure. I, why don't I just read a little passage here? Maybe two little passages. What this is this has to do with what we know who this doctor is now. Presumably, you know that he's he spent his life uh, uh, working with hom- homeless people, mostly ill ones. According to a doctor who had worked for the program in its early years, the program is this Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program, Jim had a knack for pre-admiration. The doctor explained, even the average extrovert is not super excited about meeting somebody who smells bad, who's wearing tattered clothes, is lying on the ground and asking for money. But it's possible to do, and Jim was the most powerful example I'd ever seen in my life of somebody who was doing that naturally. Pre-admiration was something like the opposite of prejudice, a quality the doctor had tried to emulate. I think that Jim has an attitude of pre-admiration for the people he doesn't yet know. His presumption is, oh, I'm eventually going to like this person. I will probably find some reason over time to like them. I just happen not to know it yet. <laughs> I think, and in my experience of you know spending years with this guy, that's absolutely true. He, he, he went all around the streets pre-admiring people, and he, and then there were all kinds of people he'd already pre he'd already pre-admired in the past. Did, did you felt when when you first met him was he welcoming to this author who was interested in writing a story? Yeah, I mean he's he was very um, courtly, you know, very obliging. Took a long time. Jim's a quiet fellow um, and a, a self-effacing fellow, as his assistant once said of him. He's so smart. And he hides it so well. He's um, humble to a fault, you know, uh, and it's sometimes hard to, to read him. As one of his longtime colleagues once said, uh, in, in consternation to me, he said, I've never known where I stand, stand with him because he's so effing nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, it, but gradually, I think, little by little, we spent a lot of time together, and I learned more and more. And I mean, I think he hides... Some, smart, correctly and, and intelligently some of the things that are not so great that he feels are not so great about himself and, if he, and he does that in part for in service of his patients I mean he's very good at diplomatic with politicians and so on and he's really won over I mean the, the governor used to call him for advice on issues having to do with homelessness really yeah and drug addiction and so on so it, it, it's, it's useful let me ask you yeah. Tracy yeah. Kidder you, you have how many books have you written uh, that I that I acknowledge that, that you I acknowledge that, yeah <laughs> I think it's ten or eleven like yeah right and, I, and and so often what you're writing in my introductory comments I t- I pointed out that you look for the heroes among us you find people who are doing work out in the open and and you and you are able to identify the ones that are just doing special things and introduce us to them how did you get there I mean I remember House. Actually, I knew most of the characters in your book, House. When when was that? In the eighties? That was in the eighties as yeah, well. Yeah, 85? I don't yeah, remember. Yeah, right. Um, some of them were our friends in Ashfield and yeah. in Northampton. Jonathan Suwain. I was working in that law firm. Um, but then, then you 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 start identifying special people, and you, you manage to communicate what makes them special. How did you unearth that? 
Well, I I don't know exactly. You know, uh, it did did seem at some point to me like a, a good challenge to try to portray some of the virtue in the world. Not, and I hope not in a in a Pollyannaish way, or you know, uh, not to sugarcoat things. I mean, I wanted to try to, if with Paul Farmer and this guy, I wanted you to see, wanted you to feel that they were real human beings. I, uh, but, I, I, you know, I guess it, it's partly that I've, particularly with Paul Farmer, and, and since then, I, I've, when you wake up in the morning, you read the paper, or you listen to the news, and you think that the world is simply ruled by violence, chaos, and cruelty. Uh, and it's, it is, for me at least, important somehow to know that there are a lot of people out there, you know, uh, working the other way, in the other direction and doing it competently, effectively, and with real real passion. It doesn't mean that they're going to win, but it's nice to know that they're there and trying. It's The world isn't, isn't so simple. I mean, a cynic likes to think they know, you know, cynics have it easy if, they're, if, they, if you consider them reporters because they know why everybody does everything Already, you know, it's it's a very um, it's a very stupid way of seeing the world. But to, and to see the world all through rose-colored glasses would be stupid too. But I I have looked for people I admire, um, just because they interest me more than um, people who are as deeply flawed as I am. You know, <laughs> deeply flawed as you are. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to take another break. We're talking to Tracy Kidder. The book is Rough Sleepers. We're going to come back once again. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Less than one year since she launched her gubernatorial campaign in East Boston, Maura Healey on Thursday took the oath of office as the 73rd governor of Massachusetts, asking the people of the Bay State to join her in writing the next chapter of the Massachusetts story. We have to make Massachusetts a place that people can afford to call home. Our people can't realize their dreams until we end the nightmare of high costs. Healy took the oath of office administered by Senate President Karen Spilka. A Connecticut couple is gifting the Emily Dickinson Museum in Amherst with a major donation. Jane and Robert Keeter of Lakeville have made a $2.5 million contribution specifically to endow the museum's directorship, creating the first endowed position at the historic home of the famous poet. Museum director Nora Morales tells the Gazette it's the largest single gift the museum has ever received from an individual donor or couple during their lifetime. The Greenfield City Council voted in their president and vice president for 2023 last night. Dan Gwynn was unanimously voted in as the council president, and Christine Forgey won the majority vote for vice president against former council president Sheila Gilmore. Gwynn and Forgey have worked together for 20 years in municipal government. Gwynn served as the city's first council president when Forgey became the first mayor of Greenfield. City Council will hold its first meeting of 2023 on January 18th, at 6.30 p.m. in the John Zahn Community Center. Snow ends by mid-afternoon, up to three inches of accumulation. Might even see some sun before sunset, a high of 36 to 40. Partial clearing tonight, overnight low, 24 to 30. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, 38 to 42, upper 30s and mostly sunny on Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Hey, it's Jason with the Weather Channel and SnowCountry.com. The Capital One Quicksilver card. Earn 1.5% cash back on every purchase. What's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. Chilly temps have returned and snow crews have been busy running the guns nonstop while the groomers dig down with the power tillers to keep the trails smooth and loose as that colder weather settles in. Trail counts will be on the rise. Remember to check the grooming report for trails that have seen the most recent attention. They'll be in the best shape this weekend. Jiminy Peak close to 10 heading into the weekend. Skiing till 10 every night. Wet shoes and skis till 930 every night. And Stratton, more than three dozen runs 36 of them have been groomed for the day. Saskadena 6, about a half dozen runs, more than 60 trails still at Killington. That's 40-plus miles of terrain there. 
Ski and ride like a beast at Vermont's biggest Icon Pass destination this winter. Killington Resort is home to the longest season in the East and the all-new K-1 Lodge. Plan a visit today at Killington.com. Check out more at SnowCountry.com. I'm Jason Dean. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we are back with author Tracy Kidder, and we're talking about his book, Rough Sleepers. And we're talking about Dr. Jim O'Connell, who does this heroic work for the homeless people of Boston. Um, I was going to ask you, could you read another passage from your book? Yeah, I'd like to. Thank you. Yeah, it's right from the very end. I, I uh, This is sort of elegiac, but J Jim has this huge portrait gallery of photographs he's taken of patients he had particularly liked outside his office, sort of hidden away in this building. And I, and I got uh, several tours of these with him. Um, I, I'll just read about the last one of these. Jim had stored at least 1,000 photographs of patients on his computer. The first patient photo that Jim took, in some ways the most no notable, didn't hang in the hallway gallery. It's a picture of a woman named Gretel. Years of hard drinking had left her with end-stage cirrhosis. Jim and his colleagues pled her case with the specialists. They agreed to consider her for a liver transplant if she could achieve six months of proven sobriety. She went into McGinnis' house and quit alcohol for good. A few days before the surgery, she asked Jim to take her picture. She had lived on the streets for decades. Out on the van at night, he used to find her on the stoop of an abandoned building surrounded by foul-smelling stuff spoiled milk, rotten eggs, which she, which, she, sorry, which she assembled to fend off nocturnal human predators. When she was living outside, he never saw her dressed in anything but filthy rags. But when she appeared for the picture-taking, she was transformed. She had put on a dress and mascara, lipstick, and nail polish. In the photo, she looks weathered in the face but elegant, fashionably, fashionably thin, proudly erect, on the table beside her, she has placed a bunch of cut flowers in a styrofoam coffee cup. Jim remembers wondering what all this meant. Was she afraid she would die in surgery? She laughed at him. She reminded him that she had been a woman living on the streets for decades, in danger of dying every night. And then she explained to me that she had two kids, two daughters, and one had been three years old, I think, and the other had been six years old when she last saw them, Jim said. And that was about 25 years ago, and she was worried that should they ever go looking to see who their mother was or what happened to their mother, there wouldn't be a picture of someone they could at least be proud of. Until Gretel, Jim had refrained from photographing patients. He thought they might feel embarrassed or exploited. But the day after he took her picture, 22 others came to him asking that he take their pictures too. He was surprised but thought he understood. They wanted something to, wanted something to show they passed, this way, he says, I started to think that loneliness is really what drives much of what goes on in our world. Trying to fill that emptiness can be a real challenge. Gretel survived the transplant. She lived for another five years quite happily. At almost every lecture, Jim shows the photograph for which she'd gotten all dressed up more than 20 years ago, and he tells the audience her story in the hope that one of her daughters might be sitting out there. He had the portrait printed and framed, but he has set it aside ever since for safekeeping. I never put it on the wall here because I'm holding it for her daughters. I don't know if they're ever going to come looking for her or not. And that was... The, <laughs> I, the, the clear affection of this man, I mean, it's just his plain old humanity. It's a nice, a nice quality in a he doctor. He sounds angelic. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, he hates being called a saint. Which, of course, in some people's eyes, improves his qualifications, right? <laughs> there were, you know, he and Paul Farmer were friends. They knew each other. Really? He was, young, he was older than Paul. Um, That's just a coincidence? That didn't have anything to do no, with that? No, it had nothing to do with that in my case, although they're from both, you know, we're Boston docs. Um, Paul was, Paul was a, Paul, I miss Paul more and more every day, just miss knowing he's in the world. But he was a very different sort of person from Jim. Not, nowhere near as humble. <laughs> um, what I like to say is that Jim really hates being called a saint. He doesn't, and I think he knows it's not true. Paul kind of liked it, <laughs> which is kind of something. You know, I'm wondering, does Jim, when, when you told him you wanted to write about his story, did, did he want you to um, 
let us know, educate us about the plight of the homeless? Was he trying to humanize the homeless? Was he trying to um, get us to support more medical treatment for the homeless? What? Why was he supporting your effort? I, I'm not. I never really asked him that, but it seems clear to me. I mean, he was. There were no. There were no provisions put on this. He was completely. You know, Honest. he knew he wasn't going to get to vet this or, 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 you know, prove the picture, but he did, he does feel a strong mission. Um, and I, you know, and he spends a lot of time talking on this subject in various places all over the country. In fact, in many parts of the world, I can't tell you how many people when I was there would visit these street team meetings from England, from Australia once, uh, someone from um, India. There were it was a guy from Louisiana, which could be a foreign country, I suppose. Yeah, right. To some you need of a passport us. to come in from Louisiana. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, he, yeah, I think I think that's true. I think he felt it was might be worthwhile. You know, I probably drove him crazy sometimes, but he never let that show. Well, I am so glad that you wrote this book. I am so glad that I had the opportunity to start it. I can't wait to finish it. Um, Tracy Kidder, uh, the book is Rough Sleepers: Dr. Jim O'Connell's Urgent Mission to bring healing to homeless people. It is going to be released around the 17th. It'll be there in your independent bookshop. And I hope everybody reads this. Tracy, you and Jim O'Connor will be doing a reading at the Edwards Church, uh, a broadside reading at 7 p.m. talk, really. What's that? A talk, really. A talk. Yeah, not a reading. A talk. Uh, That's at 7 p.m. on uh, January 18th. I'll certainly remind listeners about it before. Thank you, yeah. uh, The 18th and... um, Every time I read a Tracy Kidder book, I am, it just makes me bigger and more aware of important heroes among us. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Buzz. Nice, nice We're going to be back after the break, and it is Jeff Napolitano's. He's got a very good thing. Dr. Megan Harvey, the epidemiologist from Springfield College, the person who runs the dashboard uh, for Northampton and East Hampton on COVID-19, will be joining us. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Maybe together we can get somewhere, any place is better. Starting from zero, got nothing to lose, maybe we'll make something. Me, myself, I got nothing to prove. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to, you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can say something. We all can say something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits? Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. It's polka carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. Are you an immigrant worried about your future? Do you want to change your life? At Center for New Americans, you can take English classes for free. They help immigrants with jobs, licenses, healthcare, as well as immigration and citizenship. CNA helps you create a better future. Visit our website at cnam.org. Call 413-587-0084. The first of what could be many lawsuits have been filed against Southwest Airlines because of the thousands of flights it canceled over the Christmas holiday weekend. The plaintiffs in two class action suits claimed the airline failed to provide the services it promised when it sold tickets. 
If you're thinking about downloading an app to help with a New Year's resolution, be careful. A new study from Incogni, a data privacy platform, took a hard look at resolution-oriented apps. It found privacy risks associated with 344 of them. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the New York Attorney General's Office have sued auto lender Credit Acceptance Corporation. The federal and state agencies claim the lender misrepresents the cost of credit and tricks its customers into high-cost loans on used cars. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And this is not Buzz. This is Jeff Napolitano. I have, uh, as usual, commandeered the show from, from Buzz, who's sitting across from me right now, um, for uh, a segment. And this is actually a sort of a callback segment. Uh, Dr. Megan Harvey is with us. Uh, she is a professor of public health and an epidemiologist at Springfield College. Uh, she joins us on the phone to talk about COVID. And um, Dr. Harvey, you were you were you joined us, uh, I think, in late October, um, in which at which point I think you were warning folks about the the possibility of a triple demic of COVID and flu and RSV, and that seems to have come to pass. Um, yes, unfortunately. So, yeah, unfortunately, right. And so. Um, Given that you are, I believe you're still maintaining the dashboard, the COVID dashboards for East Hampton and in Northampton. On, um, at yeah. the, yep. Um, what you, you seem like the right person to ask, um, what's COVID look like in Western Massachusetts at the moment? Yeah, um, we are certainly seeing a high community transmission. It's not super surprising after a series of holidays and people being inside together. Um, it seems to be fueled by perhaps um, this new subvariant XBB 1.5. Uh, the CDC is kind of investigating what's going on with this. We might see this subvariant kind of move through the whole country, but it seems to be kind of starting in the Northeast. And I think we're probably seeing some of that in Western Massachusetts. So we have high transmission. We're seeing an increase in hospitalizations. Um, right now, we definitely have a lot of, of infection and virus out there. And uh, I, I've seen that some folks have said that that's, this is so far m- maybe the most transmissible virus, something having to do with like the ACE inhibitor receptor site and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, okay. that's always true. So anytime there's a new variant or subvariant that becomes dominant, by definition, it has to be more transmissible and more contagious than the one that came before. Otherwise, it can't outcompete it. Um, so, yes, we are, are seeing increasingly uh, contagious variants come through. Um, and if you were to sort of compare this variant, XBB 1.5, to our very first alpha, you know, it's vastly different. But we are different, too. Our immune systems are different. So it's a little bit, um, it is true that it's more contagious, um, but that we can sort of take that to be super alarming or we can just understand that this is what viruses do. They get more contagious and a new variant will become dominant. Um, and as long as we don't see a huge shift forward, like we saw with the Omicron variant last November, then we're in pretty good shape. Gotcha. Um, so given that so much COVID testing has gone away um, in that, you know, so much surveillance is no longer being done, at least certainly by the federal government, um, and, you know, even in state and local governments, what are the useful metrics that people should be able to look at to figure out risk and how, how, how much COVID is out there? Yeah, that we still report the official case rate, um, and, and it's sort of meaningless. Um, not totally meaningless. I, sh- I shouldn't say that far, but it's really just a made-up number of some under-report of the true number of cases out there. I would certainly never want to go back to when our only way of being tested was drive-through PCR testing. But the silver lining of that was that we captured all of the positive tests that way. And now just on, you know, probably you and me and everyone listening, you know, we know that when we get infected, we get a rapid test, we test positive. And even if you try to call somebody and tell them, your doctor does not care (laughs) that it's turned positive. I mean, they care but they're not recording it. They're not sending it to the state. So all of those rapid tests that we do at home, that data doesn't go anywhere. It's not part of our case rate. So we need something objective and ideally something that covers everybody 
And really all we have right now um, is wastewater data, which is actually a great tool. Um, essentially, we're just looking for the concentration of a piece of the virus, of COVID-19 virus, mm-hmm. in our wastewater. Um, we have it on the uh, county level, which is great. It would be lovely if we had it on the community level, um, but it's not devastating that we don't. The county level is is pretty helpful. Mm-hmm. And so that's an excellent way to sort of see. And we are watching all of the counties in Western Massachusetts and Massachusetts with wastewater data, the viral concentration is just increasing, increasing, increasing over the past uh, several weeks or months. I see. Okay. Um, so uh, we're talking to Dr. Megan Harvey, uh, an epidemiologist, um, about COVID. Uh, a number of studies have come out, like there's at least one a week, uh, peer-reviewed studies in Lancet and Nature and so forth that show the, the long-term damage of even a mild or asymptomatic COVID infection can be significant you know, to your heart, to your endothelial system, so on and so forth. Uh, it appears that there are doctors that are trying to raise the alarm that the respiratory disease caused by COVID is perhaps less significant than the long-term effects. Um, do you think that these doctors um, have have a right to be alarmed about this sort of thing? And if so, what could or should we do about it? This is a tough question. There's so much packed into this long COVID business. We know for sure long COVID is real. Um, and it's not a total mystery to us. We have examples of long um, flu and long RSV and really long any virus. Um, so we understand kind of that this can happen, that there is systematic and or localized cell damage after viral infection, long after the virus itself has been cleared from the system. We don't know a lot about what's actually going on with long COVID, though. We know it seems to be much more prevalent than long any other virus. It seems to cause more damage. Um, We're seeing maybe heart um, conditions, kidney failure, maybe some of the neurological, like the loss of um, smell that seems to persist. So there seem to be some significant differences. And so I'm I'm kind of dancing around your question, which is that should we be worried? What should we be doing about it? Um, it's hard to say because we're in this time where if we had sort of got this COVID-19 situation under control and we didn't have, um, even in a highly vaccinated and boosted state, hospitals full, then I would be more worried about long COVID than about COVID-19 infection itself. Mm -hmm. But in the context of 400 people a day in the U.S. still dying of COVID-19, and hospitals filling up, and that meaning that care has to get, even if not explicitly rationed, you have to, you know, doctors and nurses have to split their time between patients, and it, it requires some, you know, rationing of care. In that context, where we, I think we're still sort of like the house is still on fire. Um, it's not that it's not important. I think it's incredibly important, and we need to put a lot more resources and investment into this than we have so far. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we have to do that at the same time as sort of dealing with the house that's on fire. Okay. Uh, Dr. Uh, Megan Harvey, um, this is Buzz. I wanted to know, are we still um, seeing people not getting the anti-vaxxers still uh, hell-bent on making sure they don't get vaccinated? And what about the boosters? Are the, the boosters, I mean, I've gotten two vaccines and four boosters. Whenever they're available, I get them. Are those boosters as effective against these subvariants that you're talking about? as we hope that they are? Yes, this booster um, has proved to be really helpful. Um, So we can look at hospitalization and death data from COVID-19 at sort of each level of vaccination status. So from unvaccinated to just the prime series and then any number of boosters, and then ultimately this up-to-date booster, this bivalent booster. Um, And we see the lowest rates of infection, of hospitalization, of death, if we have the bivalent uh, fall booster. That's comforting. Um, and what about anti-vaxxers? Are they still, yeah, are they still people who are refusing still at the same rate? a really significant proportion of this country, not so much in Massachusetts, um, although it exists, but um, you know, Massachusetts is fairly well off in terms of our vaccination status. But yeah, we have pockets of this country that are, are really have low vaccination rates. And even in people who are vaccinated, we have really low, I'm, I'm glad to hear you have all your boosters and the updated booster. We have really low uptake on the updated booster. Even in Massachusetts, we're talking about 
something like 25-ish percent. Yeah, I actually... That is not enough. I looked that up uh, on the CDC website before before the show today, and, and in Hampshire County, for folks above the age of five, there's 33% who have gotten the bivalent, bivalent booster, the yeah. latest booster. Yeah. Yeah, So, and that's incredibly high compared to the national average. Yeah. Um, and that's only a third of us, and we have this Omicron subvariant that's becoming dominant again. It's like the perfect... Um, booster for what this the scenario is right now. It's certainly not too late to go get it, um, but we just have really poor uptake. Okay, Dr. Megan Harvey, I, we have one last question for you, um, and that is, you know, this sort of leads into the maybe why some of the folks haven't gotten the, the booster, and that's that there have been many declarations that the pandemic is over, including the president himself this past summer. Um, can COVID be suppressed or eliminated by merely using this vaccine-only approach um, that the federal government is is pushing? My short answer is no. We need to do so much more, and I'm not referring to going back to sort of the emergency mitigation strategies we had early, but things like investing in air filtration uh, in every single building with support, um, financial support from the federal government. I mean, there's really no reason at this point, this many years into this, that given what we know about the, and how important air circulation is, that we're not investing in every single school building, you know, getting uh, UV filtration and better filtration systems in general. It's that kind of thing in addition to the vaccine that I, I wouldn't say eliminates. I don't even know if I was suppressed. But that is the kind of thing that's going to move us forward into a lower risk situation. All right. Um, Dr. Megan Harvey, uh, professor of public health and an epidemiologist at Springfield College. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, uh, Hopefully it will be at some point when things are are a lot better on the virus front. But um, we greatly appreciate uh, your your work and, um, and, uh, and your words today. Yeah, I just want to amplify that. Thank you so much for what you do every day. Um, we never, I didn't even know how to say epidemiology before all this mess started, but uh, now I realize the importance of it, and I want to thank you. Oh, thank you. All right. Well, Jeff, thanks so much. Um, I haven't had the opportunity to, to see you. I just want folks to know that the January 6th uh, event, which is, I think, um, Beth, I think Indivisible was planning it in front of City Hall. I think it's been continued to tomorrow at noon. Is that right, Jeff? I think so. I haven't checked the latest, but I, that's what I think it is on Facebook. There will be a rally uh, to, to talk about the damage to January 6th. Wonderful speakers, John Bonifaz and many others, uh, will be at that rally. It'll be tomorrow at, I believe, noon. Check out with Indivisible. Uh, and everybody else, have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday. We'll hear you on Monday. Have a good weekend. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station.